we were at the uh, Hall of Fame. Ted Williams came into the room and came over and sat down. And Williams said to me, Commissioner, you know pitchers are the dumbest people in the world. Warren Spahn says, what are you talking about? He said, hitters are the dumbest people in the world. Where that conversation leads between two Hall of Famers is a perspective changer, just in time for what's shaping up to be a great World Series. This is Wavemaker Conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious. My guest, the former commissioner of Major League Baseball, Faye Vincent. In our previous conversation together, Vincent shares his personal story, beginning with a devastating accident in college that left him paralyzed for months from the chest down and permanently disabled. We'll return to that at the end of this episode, but right now, with the 2015 World Series underway, it's Faye Vincent, baseball's oral historian. Warren Spahn, who was probably my favorite old-timer, And I loved him. He was the smartest person I ever talked to about baseball by a wide margin. Spahn fought all the way across Europe in the Army in World War II, lost four or five years, had never won a game in the big leagues until after World War II when he was 25 years old. And then he won 363 games. Now think of that. That's the most wins by a left-handed pitcher in the history of baseball. Nobody's close. I once said to him, Warren, who taught you how to pitch? And his answer is the single most brilliant answer on any question I've ever received talking to anybody. And he looked at me as if I had to be the dumbest person he'd ever talked to about baseball. And in sort of a a patronizing way, he said to me, Commissioner, hitters taught me how to pitch. And the light went off, and I thought, of course. And who teaches doctors how to be doctors but patients? Who teaches lawyers how to be lawyers but clients? Who teaches anybody anything? You do it by learning from your your experiences. And he learned how to pitch from hitters. That was the only answer possible. It is the single most brilliant answer. We were at the uh, Hall of Fame. Ted Williams came into the room and came over and sat down. And Williams said to me, Commissioner, you know pitchers are the dumbest people in the world. And Spahn says, what are you talking about? He said, hitters are the dumbest people in the world. We get hitters out eight out of 10 times on a good day for the hitters, and they're trying to tell you that pitchers are dumb. They can't hit because pitchers are too good. Williams said, I'll tell you one thing, Commissioner. Spahn was not stupid. He said, is he going to tell you the story about the All-Star game? And I said, yes. Oh, Spahn said, look, here's the great Williams. I get him. At the end of the game, there's a couple guys on base. Somehow I got him down two strikes. And he said, I thought to myself, I got to throw that pitch right up at his chin because it's very hard to lay off a fastball high. It's in your eye plane, and most hitters swing at high pitches because it looks 
like a basketball coming up there. It's because it's at your eye level. And of course, when you try to get the bat on it, you have to get the bat up. And that split second means you can't hit a high fastball. So Spahn said, I threw it right at his chin. And by God, he said, he swung at it and he missed. I struck him out. Now he said, he's a son of a bitch. The next year, we're at spring training. He said, Williams, you remember this? Williams said, oh, I remember. We're down in Florida. And he said, I'm out there in left field and I'm running back and forth. And out comes Williams from the dugout. And he's flapping his arms and he's screaming at me, Spawny, Spawny, Jesus Christ. He said, I got to talk to you. Spawny, come over here. And he said, I went over. William says to me, Spawny, Jesus, he said. I had to tell you, he said, remember that pitch you threw at me in the All-Star game? He said, you got me down two strikes. And he said, you threw that face fastball right at my chin, high and tight. And he said, Jesus Christ, I swung it. He said, Spawny, I want you to know that's a great pitch. He said, you throw that pitch to a left-handed hitter like me, a big guy that really leans on the fastball. He said, we love that fastball high in there. And he said, it's a great pitch. We can't hit it. And he said, you would use it more. He said, use it a lot. And Williams corroborated this. Now, Spani said, you would think I'm getting set up. And he said, sure enough, that son of a bitch. He said, uh, a year or two later, honest to God, we get in the All-Star game again. I don't know to this day whether that son of a bitch set me up or whether I just got two strikes on him again. He said it's possible that he let me get the two strikes knowing what was going to happen. And I remembered what he said. And I figured two strikes, this is it. And he said, I threw that fastball again right at his chin. Commissioner, he hit it 450 feet into the right center field stands. And when he got to first base, he was laughing and flapping his arms. And he said, I started screaming at him. And when he got to second base, I said, you son of a bitch, you set me up, didn't you, didn't you? And Williams just looked at me and nodded his head up and down. Now, I say of all the baseball stories I've ever heard, that is the single great story because it demonstrates the thesis I have that the great ball players are the smartest. Intelligence, it's not good enough to have great equipment, though they have it. But those two guys were always thinking. Williams knew if he told Spahn to throw that fastball, there would come a day when Spahn would throw it to him. He didn't know where or when, but he knew that if he got Spahn thinking that with two strikes you throw a fastball up and in to a left-handed hitter, and he said, by God, Spahn fell for it. And I love Spahn saying, he's a smart son of a bitch, Commissioner. He set me up, and he may have even set me up for the two strikes. I don't know the answer to that. There's something else that may help us all watch the World Series and every other game with a better set of lenses. As William said to me, every good hitter in the big leagues wants to hit a fastball. And he said, you have to remember that we get to the big leagues because we murder a fastball. So the trick is to figure out when a pitcher is likely to throw you a fastball. 
He said, we all have trouble with a curveball. And so every pitcher, every hitter, everybody in the big leagues knows the trick is to figure out what the odds are. I asked DiMaggio and Williams one time, did they ever guess? And Williams was insulted. And DiMaggio said, we don't guess, Commissioner, but we do calculate the odds. And that's where the brains come in. They remember that on a given day, Faye Vincent is almost certain with a count three and one because he can't get his curveball over. He's never had a good curveball. He is going to throw a fastball because he's behind in the count. He doesn't want to walk. And so he'll try to throw it on the edge. But you can be sure, three and one, these guys have remembered that eight out of ten times Vincent has thrown a fastball, three and one, against them. And they are ready for the fastball because they can hit a fastball, especially if they have a sense that it's coming. The one that gives them a lot of trouble is the curveball. And yet, of course, in life in general, right, if all you're throwing are curveballs, they're going to become very easy to hit. Well, so so except, you've got to have the fastball. Well, you, you have to have something else. But the curveball is the most difficult pitch to hit because not only is it moving, but it's moving in a different plane. It's dropping. And almost all of the big hitters, if you, I said to DiMaggio, who gave you a lot of trouble? And I thought he was going to say Feller or somebody with the great fastball. But, of course, that was my stupidity. It would never be. They never had a tr problems with a fastball pitcher because that was their specialty. He said Cleveland had a pitcher with a terrific curveball. I had trouble. He said the, the tough pitch for me was the curveball. A really good curveball that's dropping is a tough pitch to hit. There's this idea of calculating, though. There's another layer now that maybe we've only just recently discovered, but there's a sports writer, David Epstein, wrote a book called The Sports Gene. I interviewed him about it. And he found that uh, they just, they happened to sample players recently on the Los Angeles Dodgers, found that the, uh, an unusually high percentage had better than 2020 vision. They had 2012, 2011 vision. What did that enable them to do, according to Epstein and, and the neuroscientists who looked at this? It did not enable the hitters to see the ball better. In fact, rarely do they truly see the ball. It enabled them to see what, what is called the anticipatory cues in the windup that helped them quickly size up what pitch is coming. Did any of these hitters ever talk to you about reading the pitcher, not calculating based on the you know, odds and based on past experience, but reading the pitcher? No, but they really were, they were very compulsive about the pitcher's history they remembered everything he'd ever done. In other words, they, because the leagues were small, don't forget, they only had eight teams in each league. So they were seeing the same pitches over and over and over again. And they got to be very expert on knowing what each pitcher did. And the whole trick was to, of course, Spahn was the expert. You had to, to get the hitter off balance. You had to do something that had him thinking that he knew what was coming or starting a swing and then realizing it was a change up. And I asked Yogi Berra once, what made Whitey Ford such a great pitcher? 
and he said he could throw a strike three and two with any number of his pitches. So I could call for a changeup, a fastball, a slider, anything, three and two, and he could throw it overhand, he could throw it three quarters, or he could throw it sidearm. So he had three different arm angles that would confuse a batter and probably five different pitches. So you could never know, and because I knew he could throw a strike with any number of those pitches, I didn't have to, you know, they always say the hitter's pitch is the three and one pitch because you know the odds are very high it's gonna be a fastball. Well, with a good pitcher, there's no such thing because he thinks backwards or, Warren Spahn was always trying to figure out what you were thinking. And if he had you thinking that the next pitch was gonna be fastball, you'd never see the fastball. This brings us right into a, a, a current breaking news baseball issue, which is, should they speed up the pace of the game? Should well, they I get think the they batters? should, I mean. Well, but directly to your point, the more you speed it up, the less time these pitchers and hitters have to think in between pitches. No, they don't, they don't need much time because they have a data bank that's instantly available and so when Poppy in Boston says, hey, this isn't fair, I need my time to size things up, you think he thinks faster than he's giving himself credit for. Oh, yeah. I mean, he steps out and he likes to, because, you know, he, he really wants to think about what that last pitch was, and they're very quick. The really great ball players are also the smartest. I don't mean SAT smart, but Yogi Berra had at the tip of his brain everything he'd ever seen in baseball. Well, you mentioned Yogi Berra, so bringing you back to Little League, which is, by the way, sparked, I think I mentioned to you, sparked my interest in baseball for the first time in many years, watching my kids get coached by good coaches in Little League. And I asked one of uh, my son's old baseball coaches who pitched in the College World Series, I said, who's the smartest guy in the field, typically? He said, the catcher. I said, why? Because he's got to know everything, every call, every angle, every possibility. It's the catcher. Well, you know, they used to call the, the catching equipment the tools of ignorance because the guy that was sort of unable to do a lot of other things ended up as the catcher. In fact, it's a very tricky position because playing it defensively is important. The consequences of missing a pitch uh, the throw to second base is murderously difficult. It's a very difficult position to play. I think catching, pitching, shortstop, and center field are the great positions. Every team has to be, the baseball phrase is strong up the middle. So if you were to start a team, the thing you must have is a pitcher, a catcher, a shortstop, and a center field. Those are so vital. In a moment, a slice of baseball history very few people know about, told to Faye Vincent by the second African-American to play in the majors. He said, uh, when we got dressed and we went out on the field, when you go out on the field, you stand by the dugout and everybody plays catch. He said, I go out on the field and I'm the first black. But he said, nobody was playing catch with me. And then one player did the right thing. You'll hear it in a moment on this episode of Wavemaker Conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious. 
With Domino's new Piece of the Pie rewards, you earn a free medium two-topping pizza after just six online orders of $10 or more. Need some reasons to order? Throw a half-birthday party for your husband. Happy 36 and a half. Or your cat. <coughs> or get in touch with your vegetarian side. Hold the pepperoni. But we think free pizza's reason enough. Start earning points toward free pizza with our $5.99 mix-and-match deal at Domino's.com today. Rewards program is open only to U.S. residents 13 and older with a pizza profile account. Only one order per day earns points. Complete details at Domino's.com slash rewards. You must select this limited-time offer. Prices, participation, and charges may vary. Introducing Play.it, a podcast network like no other. From award-winning news programming and number one sports brands to entertainment and business leaders, Play.it is delivering storytelling at its best. We're going to be having conversations with newsmakers and culture shapers. I will be talking mostly about fashion and how I've been marketing all my life. Tech, culture, and entrepreneurship. Everything in the world of sports entertainment and wrestling and beyond. Hear what you've been missing at Play.it. This is Wavemaker Conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious. I'm Michael Shoulder. My guest, the former commissioner of Major League Baseball, Faye Vincent, who is one of the sport's most captivating oral historians, recounting now the story of Larry Doby, the second African-American to play in the majors. Larry Doby, a great friend of mine and a very special guy, on July 5th, 1947, which was about a month after Jackie Robinson went to the big league. Jackie Robinson played in April for the Dodgers and the first time a black ever played in the big leagues. That was April of 1947. On July 5th, the American League integrated with Larry Doby. I didn't know Robinson, but I knew Doby well. And I said to him, what was it like that first day, he was in Chicago. The Indians were playing Chicago at Comiskey Park. And he said, they brought me in the clubhouse before the game. And he said, of course, it's all white. And uh, he said, they took me around the room. The manager was Lou Boudreau. I don't think Lou Boudreau was a big supporter of uh, black coming to baseball. But Doby wouldn't say that. He said, Boudreau introduced me to the guys in the clubhouse. And he said, uh, Commissioner, as I went around the room, about half of them held their hand out and said, uh, welcome, kid. Uh, I hope you enjoy it here. You know, glad to have you on the team. And he said, the other half turned around and wouldn't shake my hand. And I said, which ones didn't shake your hand? And he said, Commissioner, I'm not going to tell you that. He said, what good does it do? It doesn't do anybody any good for me to tell you who the bad guys were. What if you asked me who were the good guys and who really went out of their way to be good to me? He said, that's a better question. I said, okay. Who were the good guys? He said, I'm going to start with Joe Gordon. Joe Gordon was a second baseman. By the way, Dobie was a second baseman. So Gordon knew that Dobie was, in some sense, a competitor for Gordon's position on the team. Gordon was a former Yankee. He'd been traded to Cleveland, and he said, uh, when we got dressed and we went out on the field, you know, the, you go out on the field, you stand by the dugout, and everybody plays catch. He said, I go out on the field and I'm the first black. He said, although I didn't think of it that way, I didn't realize I was doing something historic. I was worried about getting a hit or, or being a ball player. He said, I wasn't, 
I never thought of myself as a historic figure. But he said, nobody was playing catch with me. Nobody said, you know, let's play catch. So I'm standing there. And he said, I must have stood there for a couple of minutes. It was really awkward. And I felt very bad about it. When Gordon came out and Gordon said to me, hey, kid, come on over here with me. I'll play catch with you. And he said, when Gordon said, I'll play catch with you, that was it. He was the captain of the team. He was the leader. And Gordon said, in effect, I'll play catch with you as a message, which is you're on the team. You're one of us. I'm going to treat you uh, very well. Now he said, Gordon played second base. I got in the game to pinch hit. I struck out. I didn't play. And the next year, I couldn't play second base because Gordon was just too, too good a player. Gordon's now in the Hall of Fame, as is Dobie. But he said the next year they moved me to center field and I became a center fielder and that's what he played his whole big league career. When Gordon started playing catch with him, did the rest of the team follow? Well, they didn't have to. The message was clear. They saw what Gordon was going to do. I think half of them treated uh, Dobie pretty poorly, but he wouldn't get into that. He said there was a catcher named Jim Hegan that was terrific to him. He was a very fine catcher for Cleveland. There was a third base coach named Bill McKechnie, who was wonderful too. Dobie said there were guys on the team that made it possible, he said, but it was a lonely, tough time. In many cities, I couldn't eat in the same restaurant as the player, other players, segregation. In St. Louis, I had to stay in a separate hotel. And he said, life was not easy, and I'm traveling on the road without my wife. You're all by yourself. And he said, Bill Beck, who was the owner, would call me almost every day, certainly twice a week, and say, how are you doing, kid? Are you Keep your chin up. Don't let the basket get you down. In your 77 years, I mean, again, this, this raises this issue of whatever the dark times are, there, there are always people who stand up and do the right thing. Yep. And then I did something that was the right thing. I wanted to help these Negro League guys who were older. And I thought the best thing I could do for them was get them in a health plan so their health insurance would be provided. Most of them were older. They had all sorts of problems. And I did that. I put them in a... Anybody who played in the Negro Leagues before 47, I put into a covered health insurance plan. This was as commissioner? As commissioner. And they never forgot that. And, of course, most of them are now dead. But at the same time, I got them a pension of $10,000 a year now. Doesn't sound like much. And I didn't actually get the pension done. Just as I left baseball, it got done. But a guy named Len Coleman, who was a black guy who was president of the National League under me or after me, he actually got the signature done. But nobody was going to oppose it. And I'm very proud of the fact that in the Kansas City Museum, which is the Kansas City Negro League Museum, it's not the Kansas City Black Hall of Fame, as some people call it. It is the Negro League Museum. There are two white guys who were honored. One is Branch Rickey, of course, who brought Jackie to baseball. 
and the other is me. If you could just back us up, for those of us who don't know the backstory about the Negro Leagues, where did it emerge from? How did it, how did well, it come to be? Well, you have to go back to uh, the early days in baseball. In the very early days of baseball, I'm taking you back to around the time of the Civil War. Baseball came along in this country in a big way right after the Civil War. It was played in the Civil War, and when the soldiers went home, they spread it. And, of course, it had its roots in cricket, and uh, the game developed in various parts of this country. And in the very beginning, because the country was just finding its way racially, blacks and minorities in those days, Cubans, Latinos, played along with everyone else. And then some of the white players, not surprisingly, from the old Confederacy, said they weren't going to play. A guy named Cap Anson, who happens to be in the Hall of Fame, came up with this remarkable theory that he was white and he didn't want to play with those And that was a turning point. He boycotted or he got his fellow players to say they wouldn't play with black players. And so a lot of black players who had been playing and playing very well were eliminated. Over time, those players started to play in teams that were all black. And that was the beginning of what we call the Negro Leagues. The white baseball became the American and National League. The black baseball had an American and National League black. And so starting in the early part of the 20th century, certainly by 1910, 1920, black baseball was starting to be played with some success. There were teams springing up in various parts of the country. They were all black, of course. They were limited, and they couldn't play with the whites who were so-called the major leagues. But the Negro Leagues were, if you will, a set of twins. There were two Negro League teams, I mean leagues, the National, the American, and they were, they compete, and then there'd be a, a Negro League World Series, and they'd compete as did the white. There were black newspapers that covered the Negro Leagues because white baseball was accompanied with much more political support. The Negro Leagues struggled. But at a time when baseball was very successful in the 20s and 30s, Negro League baseball was also very successful. The guys who played in the Negro Leagues would make one of them told me, he said, we made about as much money as we would have made if we taught high school in Memphis or in uh, Dallas or any of the areas, admittedly, in the South. And in the North, high schools and colleges in the 30s and 40s, many of them played integrated baseball because it was the North. Larry Doby said when he was a kid, he played on a high school team that was integrated, and so did Joe Black, but they couldn't get signed. Nobody would sign them for the major leagues because they were black. Joe said he played in New Jersey and he had a hell of a career and he was in high school and came signing day when all the scouts were coming in and, and signing up some of his teammates. 
he was a shortstop, and he said, I was a hell of a player. Nobody signed me. And I went to the, one of the guys, of course, they're all white, and I said to him, how come none of you guys wants to sign me? I'm the best player on this team. And the guy said to him, hey, kid, you're a hell of a player, but you're the wrong color. And Joe said, imagine, I went home that night, and I tore down all the pictures on my wall of all the white guys that I worshiped. He said, there's only one white guy whose picture I kept on my wall. And I said, who? He said, Hank Greenberg. He said, I worshiped Hank Greenberg. And I thought, I'm gonna tear down all the other pictures because I hate those white guys for keeping me out of baseball, but I'm not gonna take down Hank Greenberg's picture because he was so special. He said, I loved Hank Greenberg. Any, any particular reason why he loved Hank Greenberg? Just because he was, he was from New York. I think he was Jewish. He was the closest thing to being a black in the big leagues because he was a Jew. And, and Joe said, I went to, I decided to go to college and I went to Baltimore. I got into the black university in Baltimore, Morgan State. And he said, on the first day down there, he said, I'm a Presbyterian and I always went to church every Sunday and church was really important to me. So I see this big Presbyterian church in the middle of Baltimore and he said, on a Sunday, I walked up, went in the front door and went into the church and sat down. And he said, this big white man came up to me and said, the hell are you doing in here? He said, you don't belong in here. And Joe said, but I'm a Presbyterian. I'm new. I'm, I'm at Morgan State. And he said, get your ass out of here. He said, your church is about a mile down the road. He said, you black guys don't come in this church ever again. And he said, I realized then I was in big trouble. And I never forgot. I thought, here's Joe Black. And he said, what happened is, I played baseball, and one day I went to a Baltimore elite, I don't know, I think of the elite Giants. Anyway, the, the Baltimore Negro League team was having a tryout, and they said, I didn't think I was good enough to play, but I watched them, and I realized that they were pretty good, but I thought I was pretty good, but I didn't have any uh, cleats, I didn't, but I went out there. I started playing, and he said, by God, they said, kid, you can play. We're interested in you, and maybe what you ought to do is come down here and play a couple of games with us, and we'll see if you can really play. But if you're good enough, we might be interested in you. And he said, I went down, I played a few games. He said, I didn't pitch, but I played shortstop. And then they realized I had a very good arm, and they said, well, maybe we'll try you as a pitcher. And he said, I... I became a pitcher and then he got to the Dodgers. He was the rookie of the year in 49. So he was old because he had gone to college, but he was one of the few Negro League players that went all the way through college and then ended up playing. So the fact is a, the Negro Leagues were defined. They were successful, but on balance, they were also very segregated totally segregated and they were defensive because they didn't have a lot of the assets that the major league teams had and they would play games in the big ballparks like Polo Grounds and Ebbets Field against each other 
and they had some interesting things. For example, the Negro Leagues would have four teams playing a doubleheader, not just two. So they'd have Satchel Paige pitch the first game, and then he'd get on a train or he'd get a plane and he'd fly to Philadelphia and he'd pitch later that day in Philadelphia. And some days he would then go from Philadelphia to Baltimore and he would play in three games because he was the draw. And what happened is Major League Baseball realized that when the black teams played, they drew big audiences. And so they realized there are a lot of tickets being sold and somebody's making some money, but it's not us. So part of the pressure to integrate, it wasn't all nobility. It wasn't that baseball thought it was great to have Jackie Robinson. It was that baseball realized they had this huge audience that wasn't participating in their business. And so it was a smart guy, Branch Rickey, who said, I'm going to integrate, and eventually all those black guys are going to draw the black audience to uh, baseball. In a moment, dealing with another kind of extreme adversity, physical adversity, which Faye Vincent has experienced every single day since a devastating accident in college, Beyond Baseball, in this episode of Wavemaker Conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious. With Domino's new Piece of the Pie rewards, you earn a free medium two-topping pizza after just six online orders of $10 or more. Need some reasons to order? Throw a half-birthday party for your husband. Happy 36 and a half. Or your cat. <coughs> or get in touch with your vegetarian side. Hold the pepperoni. But we think free pizza's reason enough. Start earning points toward free pizza with our $5.99 mix and match deal at Domino's.com today. Rewards program is open only to U.S. residents 13 and older with a pizza profile account. Only one order per day earns points. Complete details at Domino's.com slash rewards. You must select this limited time offer. Prices, participation, and charges may vary. Introducing Play.it, a podcast network like no other. From award-winning news programming and number one sports brands to entertainment and business leaders, Play.it is delivering storytelling at its best. We're going to be having conversations with newsmakers and culture shapers I will be talking mostly about fashion and how I've been marketing all my life. Tech, culture, and entrepreneurship. Everything in the world of sports entertainment and wrestling and beyond. Hear what you've been missing at play.it. This is Wavemaker Conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious. I'm Michael Shoulder. My guest on this World Series week, the former commissioner of baseball, Faye Vincent. You started our very first session last time. You told me about a story about Murray Chaz, about a New York Times reporter who called you up a lot of years ago, said, I have to tell you that the New York Times has asked me to, to write your obit. Are you okay? And you said, yes. When we first started talking about doing these interviews, you said, well, I'm not, I'm not really well right now. Can I ask you how your health is right now? Well, I think I'm fine. I have bladder cancer, but cancer is like a lot of things. It's, it's treatable in some sense. Mine they say is not operative, it's not functioning at the moment, but we know cancer has a way of coming back. So uh, they've treated it, they removed it surgically, they've given me antidotes and remedies for it. Um, I will be checked the rest of my life and if I'm very lucky, something else gets me. But right now it's in remission. They say, yeah. I just wonder, from that experience that you had at the age of 18, falling four stories from that Williams College dorm till now, you know, you have clearly 
you have a lot of practice dealing with adversity, especially physical adversity. And when I came to your house last time, a number of weeks ago, you were reading a book on FDR, a new book, the title of which was, remind me? The Man He Became, by and a guy named James Tobin. It's a story of Roosevelt dealing with polio and how he struggled with it. And you were just starting at that point, and I really want to come back to that. Here you are at 77, still learning from other people's stories. Knowing you, just as I know you right now, I have to imagine you finished the Tobin book. What did you draw from it that is applicable to you personally and maybe to everyone else? Well, I think you have two choices. Uh, Roosevelt had been the vice presidential candidate in 1921-20. The Democrats got wiped out by Harding and Coolidge. But he knew that he was a, uh, a very substantial candidate to be a presidential candidate in 24. He was 39 years old. He came down with polio, and he was paralyzed. His version of polio uh, got into his spinal cord. The polio cells destroyed a lot of his uh, spinal cord, so the messages to the legs wouldn't get through from the brain not unlike my own, and he had to deal with it. And I think adversity gives you a couple of choices. <laughs> there are only two. Either you take what's left, that is you live with what you've got, or you don't. And I don't think you give a lot of credit, I don't anyway, to taking the disease on or the problem on because I think especially if you're younger, you really have no choice. I mean, Roosevelt was determined to make a comeback. He thought he would walk. Well, so did I. I ended up being able to get around a lot better than he. He had braces, and he was pretty limited. He couldn't walk at all. He could walk with somebody helping him. His son James used to walk with him. So I think that credit for overcoming adversity can be overdone. On the other hand, I think someone like Roosevelt deserves enormous credit because he could have, he was very wealthy, he had all the advantages that the well-born can have, and yet he wanted to serve, he wanted to be, he knew he was a particularly attractive personality. People always loved him and liked him, and wherever he went, he won. And after the disease, he became governor of New York, which was a huge step. And then having built a base in New York, he decided to run in 1932. And of course, we know that he won. So I, I think it's, a, it's an important book in the sense that it tells you both the highs and the lows. It talks about how low he got when he realized how devastated he was how vicious the illness was, that he wasn't going to walk. He rigged up all sorts of ways he could swim. Any handicapped person, I'm one, when you're in the water, you're almost back to normal. That is, you can move in the water almost as well as a normal person. So Roosevelt and I, to a lesser extent, both took up swimming. I mean, I swim every day. It's very important to me. He swam. He rigged up elaborate ways with a derrick and a hoist so he could sit on this 
think of a swing and they'd lower the swing down into the water and then he could swim and he could get back and hoist himself on it and they'd crank him up and he loved to go down to the Caribbean and the wintertime and swim in the warm water. It's a very worthwhile book, especially for someone like me who went through some similar circumstance. Oh, mine was nowhere near as bad as his. Roosevelt really was, was laid low and he was a public figure at a time when there wasn't much tolerance for being in a wheelchair. I don't think he really hit it, but he worried about people thinking he wasn't going to be able physically to take on the job. And it turned out that he was more than able to uh, handle the job. He had a particular set of skills that, you know, the country's been fortunate. It, it comes upon leaders at just the right time. And if you believe that to be true, maybe we're going to get lucky and somebody will come along in this mess that we're in. I don't think people saw Roosevelt for what he really was when he ran for office. He'd been a governor of New York, but I don't think anybody saw in him the, the particular genius that helped us through the Depression and took us through World War II. Those, that was some achievement. And that's why I think when people rate presidents, he stands out. I don't think there's any question that he is the great president of the last hundred years. And there's nobody, maybe Truman, but there's nobody close to him, uh, given what he had to go through. Yeah, so, so as we were talking about your health, and uh, first of all, just getting the diagnosis you got and all, and all that, did your background prepare you for that better? I mean, because you seem to be very sanguine about the whole thing, and, you know. Well, what, what you know, I think I wrote to Charles Kreidheimer, who was in a wheelchair and broke his neck when he was at med school, a fan letter, and he wrote me back and said, I know about you, I've read about you, I've followed you. Anybody who's handicapped follows another person who's handicapped. So he was interested in me, and I was interested in him, and he made a really wonderful point. He said, Faye, we were both fortunate that this happened to us when we were young. If it had happened to us when we were older, we would not have made it. Why is that? Because when you're young, you have your life ahead of you and you are thinking about how you can live and what you have left. You were willing to accept the part of you that's gone because you're focusing on the part of you that's left. And he, he finished med school on time. I finished Williams on time. He went on and became a psychiatrist. Why? Because he couldn't use a stethoscope. His hands didn't work. So how can you be a doctor without touching or feeling or listening. Well, he could listen to what you said as a shrink, but he couldn't use a stethoscope and listen to your heart. So he became the only kind of doctor that he could become. This phrase you have, uh, I've never heard that, but what you have left, uh, that's a very compelling phrase. Yeah, and in and, and his case, he had a brain. And same with me, and, and I thought, I can always enjoy music. I can always enjoy the pleasures of the mind. I can enjoy Beethoven. I can do an awful lot of things. And I'm not going to be able to play tennis, and I'm not going to be able to play football. 
and I'm going to regret that. And I don't think a day goes by that I don't regret the fact that I can't walk properly and that I have to use help and I use a wheelchair. Every time I have to deal with it, it bothers me. You know, so many people say, uh, oh, I don't regret anything. No regrets in my life. And, I, and when I hear that, I start to think, well, wait a second. <laughs> it's one thing to be overwhelmed by regrets, but not to regret anything. I can regret making decisions where I had full control and applied my own judgment badly or, or didn't take into account things that I should have taken into account. The biggest decision I made that was an absolutely inane and stupid one was to go out on a winter ledge to get out of my room when my roommate locked me into it. That was the single biggest mistake an 18-year-old could make, and it almost killed me. Now, Krauthammer dove into a pool at Harvard that was too shallow, hit his head on the bottom, broke his neck. Now, he and I can say that was really a dumb moment uh, he was probably 22, I was 18. People make, you know, they get into a car with a bunch of teenagers and they let the driver go 100 miles an hour with a couple of beers in them and all of a sudden the car spins out of control and everybody gets hurt. Some of them get killed. But I think it's important all the way along for any person especially a young person, to recognize that failure is the absolutely essential element of life. Everybody is going to fail over and over again. And the question is not, are you going to fail? The question is, what do you learn from it? How do you move? Do you eliminate that failure from happening again? And I think I failed a lot. And one of the things that I look back on is, did I ever do the same thing again? Sometimes I did. And those are really, they grate on me because I say, gee, you would think a smart guy would have figured out you don't do that again. You were in Yale Law School. You did well. You just missed the Yale Law Journal. You thought it was a devastating failure at the time. Well, because if you think about the, almost everybody that I noticed who was a, a pillar of the legal church, had been a member of some law review. I mean, I, I was one of the unwashed, and I didn't like that because I thought I was more talented or better. So what, but, how did you, you respond learned, to it? Well, I responded by being aware that there are a lot of smart people out there and that being smart was only part of it. But I also recognized that I could work harder, I could be very focused, I could develop a very strong set of skills in my field. I could write, I could become prominent by being diligent. I could make up for sheer brilliance by just being a hard worker. Becoming prominent by being diligent. Faye Vincent. Next on the Faye Vincent Sessions here on the Wavemaker podcast, the Pete Rose investigation. Faye Vincent supervised it, and he will reveal what was going on behind the scenes during the process that led to the banishment from baseball of the game's all-time leader in career hits. 
If you like what you're hearing on Wavemaker Conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious, you can subscribe on iTunes. If you have an iPhone, look for that purple microphone icon. A lot of people don't know it's there. It's right on your screen. Touch it. Search Wavemaker. Click on the Wavemaker logo and then click subscribe. It's free. If you're on Android, you can listen on the new CBS podcast network, Play It at play.it slash wavemaker. And if you can't get enough of these Wavemaker stories, you can go to my website, wavemaker.me. You can follow me on Twitter at Michael Shoulder. To all the Wavemaker subscribers, thank you for being insanely curious. With Domino's new Piece of the Pie rewards, you earn a free medium two-topping pizza after just six online orders of $10 or more. Need some reasons to order? Throw a half-birthday party for your husband. Happy 36 and a half. Or your cat. <coughs> or get in touch with your vegetarian side. Hold the pepperoni. But we think free pizza's reason enough. Start earning points toward free pizza with our $5.99 mix and match deal at Domino's.com today. Rewards program is open only to U.S. residents 13 and older with a pizza profile account. Only one order per day earns points. Complete details at Domino's.com slash rewards. You must select this limited time offer. Prices, participation, and charges may vary.